Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The Black Scourge ravaged Europe, and the great cities were destroyed. Survivors flooded north where Viking longboats ferried them to the New World. As the trail of refugees grew, so too did the ships, and soon, massive, multi-decked Viking galleys trolled the wine-dark seas, building medieval cities along every coast. I'm Jordan Harbour. Come join me at the Twilight Histories podcast, where you will experience exotic worlds like this one, worlds that never existed in our timeline. An Aztec empire built by Spanish steel, a Carthaginian colony on Mars, an Egypt that never fell. Listen with the lights off and allow the images to take you away. Listen to the Twilight Histories podcast. Hello, history friend. You're about to listen to the latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails, which is, of course, very exciting. We're looking at the Thirty Years' War. But speaking of 30, something you should be aware of recently, in in other words, the weekend before this episode came out, I celebrated my 30th birthday. It is kind of wild to think that I lived for the same amount of time as this conflict I've been looking at for so long, but there you go. When I started When Diplomacy Fails... I was 20 years old, and I was in the second semester of my Bachelor of Arts in University College Dublin. Nearly 10 years later, at 30 years old, halfway through a PhD in Trinity College Dublin, it's really incredible to see how things have changed and how far I've come along. A decade of Zach Twomley. Now, that is something that even the bravest of podcasters wouldn't be willing to cover. But you're not here for me. You're here for the 30 Years War, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. If you would like to celebrate my 30th birthday with me, by far and away the best thing you could do is purchase Matchlock and the Embassy, the latest historical fiction novel set during this very period. And if you have bought Matchlock and the Embassy, and if you've enjoyed it, or if you've hated it, then giving me an honest review on Amazon, Goodreads, Google, Apple, or anywhere else you put reviews would be super, super appreciated. And things like that, I know it takes a minute or two, but little bits of effort like that really go a long way for independent authors like myself. And it should go without saying that I massively appreciate all the support you've given me so far in this new venture. It's been very exciting, very interesting, very eye-opening, and I've learned a lot of lessons that I will certainly apply for the second book, which if everything goes well, will be out before the end of the year. So look out for that, and look out for me excitedly shouting it from the rooftops when the time comes. But enough about this, let's get started with episode 45 of the Thirty Years' War.
Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 45 of the 30 Years' War. In the last episode, we saw how the two crises running side by side, the Siege of La Rochelle and the War of the Mantuan Succession, played havoc with, well, the plans of historians for constructing a coherent narrative, but also, of course, with the plans of Spain and France. With the war against the Dutch turning against them, Madrid initiated this new front at perhaps the worst possible time. Yet we learned that while Count Olivares' opportunism had something to do with the intervention, the requests for compensation for the Holy Roman Emperor and for the King of Spain were somewhat normal. They were regular processes of the era, which the indirect descendant and heir to the Duchy of Mantua, the Duke of Nevers, ignored. Rebuffed by the candidate, who came with French blessing, Count Olivares believed that it was essential that Nevers' candidacy be opposed by force to recoup this insult. If the Duke of Nevers' arrival went unanswered, then it would be clear to Europe that the Habsburgs did not have to be listened to, and this was unacceptable for the Spanish minister. In France, the situation was just as precarious, but for different reasons. Cardinal Richelieu didn't want a conflict over North Italy in 1628, just at the point when the siege of La Rochelle was heating up, after the recently departured English intervention had been repelled. 1628 would clearly be the year that the fate of this Huguenot bastion was decided, and Richelieu had his hands more than full enough with those confusing Italian duchies, also forcing him to divert attention and resources away, which could, after all that effort, be a losing battle in the end anyway. To the surprise of all involved, though, Richelieu proved much more adept at multitasking than the Habsburgs had expected. And a lot of this has to do with the decisions of the Habsburgs themselves, because almost without thinking, requests were sent to Wallenstein, the Emperor's Generalissimo, who was basically holding down the Holy Roman Empire in anticipation of what Emperor Ferdinand was about to do, the Edict of Restitution in 1629, so the year after this. But basically just picture Wallenstein holding about 100,000 troops in the Empire, and that should give you an idea of what's going on. He was also still technically at war with the Danes, but that wouldn't last much longer. In any event, the troops that he was going to send to the Netherlands to help the Spanish were diverted to North Italy instead, and this decision would have profound implications for the Habsburgs in the near future. But in the years 1628-29, to 29, it all seemed worth it. Let's take you to these weighted campaigns then, as we wrap everything into a nice, but as you can see by the length of this episode, quite a large bundle. I will now take you to early 1628. We are reminded by the historian Thomas F. Arnold of the strikingly interconnected nature of this phase of the Thirty Years' War. Placing the situation in its military context, Arnold wrote, The military situation in Europe in the summer of 1628 essentially depended on three sieges, the Spanish Siege of Casal in the Duchy of Montferrat, North Italy, the Imperial Siege of Stralsund in Pomerania, North Germany, and the siege of Huguenot-La Rochelle in western France by the royal army of Louis XIII. As long as Casal withstood, the independence of the Duke of Nevers was assured. If Stralsund fell to the emperor, then the Baltic design of Olivares could be put in motion and a united Habsburg effort mounted against the Dutch. The fall of Stralsund would also expedite the appearance of an imperial army in Italy. If La Rochelle fell to Richelieu, 
Then a French relief army, following the historical French pattern of intervention in Italy, could cross the Alps to raise the siege of Casale. Until La Rochelle fell, the Duke of Nevers would be on his own. Another incident of profound importance for the Spanish war effort was the terrific achievements at sea of the Dutch Admiral Piet Hein, who captured Spain's treasure fleet on the 8th of September 1628. We've seen this event already, but the seizure of this shining flotilla was an unmitigated disaster for Spain and a shot in the arm for the Dutch, which would pave the way for the siege of Sertigenbosch a few months later. Thus, the Spanish intervention in Mantua alongside the Duke of Savoy in March 1628 reads something like the attack on Pearl Harbour launched by the Japanese. Spain essentially had six months to run wild, and their inability to conclude the war in Mantua before this fiasco was suffered played havoc with the wider Spanish war plans. In Spain's case, though, Olivares' discovery of this fact came abruptly and at the worst possible time. It guaranteed that Spain would have to depend on the emperor more than ever, a fact painfully confirmed by the loss of Sertigenbosch in August 1629. By that point, indeed, imperial support for the Spanish in North Italy had steadily increased because the war had been significantly widened. Before the conflict had even begun in North Italy, a significant development had taken place. This was the reorientation of Savoy away from France and towards cooperation with Spain. Charles Emmanuel was the Duke of Savoy from 1580 to 1630, a 50-year period of great change, conflict and contradiction, really. Switching sides, at least three times in an official warlike capacity, Duke Charles Emmanuel had grand ambitions for his strategically placed duchy, and he hoped to transform it into a kingdom by playing off the Spanish and French against one another, in a bid to make himself indispensable. It should be said his tactics showed flutters of success, but Charles Emmanuel was occasionally overconfident and careless, such as during the siege of Geneva in 1602, which was an embarrassing failure, his stop-start intervention in the early phase of the Bohemian Revolt, where he nearly became a nominee for the King of Bohemia, or the unsuccessful attack on Genoa along the Mediterranean coast in 1625. In this latter conflict, Charles Emmanuel had worked alongside the French, but he was burned by the 1626 Treaty of Monson, which handed the Valtelline, those critical North Italian mountain passes, back to Spain and established Spanish hegemony over much of North Italy. Charles Emmanuel blamed Cardinal Richelieu for these setbacks, though the Cardinal himself had been forced to compromise in North Italy so that he could respond to the Huguenot rebellion. So as you can see, everything is connected. This was a consistent symptom of French weakness, which was still being grappled with in 1628. So long as the Huguenots were there and causing trouble, Richelieu couldn't divert his full attentions towards French foreign policy. Yet, while the Duke of Savoy's relationship with France soured, it should also be underlined that the Duke of Savoy was opportunistic, and he'd been watching the succession crisis of the Gonzaga family unfold in Mantua and Montferrat for some time. Savoy had long yearned for Montferrat, and had married into a descendant of that duchy's ruling family several decades before to strengthen this claim. The Duke of Mantua and Montferrat, hoping to pacify Savoy, had granted the Duke limited territorial compensation, 
but there was little to stop Charles Emmanuel from taking advantage of the situation once Duke Vicenzo II of Mantua and Montferrat died in late 1627. Because Montferrat was sandwiched between the borders of Savoy and Spanish Milan, it appeared to be ripe for the taking, and it also appeared to be impossible for the new Duke of Mantua to defend it. Incidentally, Charles Emmanuel's plan to coordinate this campaign of expansion alongside the Spanish campaign to restore its military reputation proved to be a miserable failure, and the stronghold of Casal, which was the capital of Montferrat, turned out to be the most impregnable nut which either Savoy or Spain had ever encountered. French diplomacy had worked hard to retain its Savoyard friend following the unpopular Treaty of Monzon in 1626, even attempting to partition the two duchies of Montferrat and Mantua and to give Savoy Montferrat at the expense of the Duke of Nevers, but to no avail. Cardinal Richelieu thus appreciated that the conflict would be pursued against Savoy as well as Spain, but that the former might prove the softer target and the Duke of Savoy might be amenable to switching sides once more if given sufficient incentives. Another claimant on the Mantuan territories, the Habsburg-supported Duke of Gustala, provided the King of Spain and the Emperor with the declared war aim and a potential puppet ruler in the aftermath of a successful war. This contingency plan suggests that the Habsburgs had not intervened for the sake of their reputation and the norms of inheritance alone. They evidently planned to rule over these North Italian duchies in some capacity once the French candidate had been ejected. An additional pretext for war in the Habsburg camp had been provided by Nevers' hasty confirmation of his position as the Duke of both Mantua and Montferrat before acquiring the blessing of the feudal overlord of these duchies, the Holy Roman Emperor. After having married the daughter of the late Duke and proclaimed himself Duke of the Two Territories, it was only then that Nevers informed Emperor Ferdinand what he had done. This was unacceptable not only because Nevers had moved so quickly, but also because he had plainly neglected the terms of the contract which the two duchies had with the Habsburg dynasty. Much like the aforementioned expectation of compensation which Nevers frustrated, he also frustrated the initial offer of compromise largely because it was such a stiff demand. According to those demands, Nevers could receive his emperor's recognition of his title as Duke of Mantua, but only if he handed Casal over to Spain. Nevers' refusal to hand over that towering fortress compelled the Spanish to make it the aim of their campaign, and by mid-May 1628, Casal was under siege. While the Spanish and Savoyards were moving against Casal, during the spring and early summer of 1628, Richelieu was tightening the noose around La Rochelle. So long as this bastion of the Huguenots was intact, Richelieu believed that neither he nor his king would have any peace. The actions of the Spanish in North Italy made it plain to him, as had been painfully obvious in the past, that Spain was not above taking advantage of French difficulties to make opportunities for itself in sensitive theatres. It was imperative that the cardinal remained transfixed on the task at hand and ignore the Spanish adventures in North Italy as best as he could. This was easier said than done, for Richelieu faced grave challenges in addition to that brave and durable garrison within La Rochelle's shrinking confines. 
The positive mood in December 1627, as the remnants of the English force had withdrawn, had given way to impatience and ill rumours by the following spring. Richelieu had done much to keep the besieging army in good spirits, with a regular wage, paid every 40 days, and free bread as standard, but morale among the besiegers was slipping nonetheless. As he grew exhausted with the pace of the siege, difficulties emerged with King Louis XIII, who wanted on the one hand to visit the site of this siege, but who also didn't wish to undermine the cardinal by visiting the siege too many times. Then there was the intrigues of the Queen Mother to consider, as Marie de Medici seemed to have taken it upon herself to scheme against Richelieu now that he had outgrown her patronage. In January 1628, a significant visitor arrived at the besiegers' camp, Ambrogio Spignola, the aged but still formidable Spanish commander, who had achieved much fame for his exploits against the Dutch. Known as an expert on siege warfare, with the capture of Breda in 1625 being his crowning achievement, Cardinal Richelieu saw fit to pick the brains of this individual over the best means of cutting the coastal city off from the rest of the world. Spignola was also informed that France strongly disproved of Spanish efforts to intervene in North Italy, and Richelieu warned that France would fight for the Duke of Nevers if required. Richelieu was here preaching to the choir. If you remember Spignola's position from past episodes, you won't be surprised at this. Spignola loathed the overstretched Spanish foreign policy adhered to by Count Olivares back in Madrid. Above all, Spignola wished for the King of Spain either to make peace with the Dutch and be done with that wretched business, or to refrain from making any additional commitments elsewhere and focus entirely on Frederick Henry's resurgent Dutch campaign. In the event, and to Spignola's disgust, Spain straddled the dangerous line of not really making any decision. She didn't make peace with the Dutch and made it plain that her interests lay above all in North Italy, a message which was received loud and clear in The Hague to Spignola's intense dismay. The overlapping interests not merely of different war theatres, but also of the commanders within these theatres, reminds us that by the late 1620s, it was no longer really possible to point to a single conflict which could stand as the prototypical Thirty Years' War, as had been possible from the outset of the Pavian Revolt. Instead, that revolt had transformed into a morass of related conflicts, with all parties rushing to accomplish their mission in one theatre so that they could focus on the next. Spignola understood that once the French were finished at La Rochelle, they would turn to meet the Spanish in Mantua, as Richelieu had just told him. Time was therefore of the essence, but speed did not seem to be in Spain's vocabulary by this point of the war. Madrid ignored the veteran commander's urgent pleas to restrict their military commitments, and they pursued the war in Mantua to their detriment. To triumph over the Huguenots, La Rochelle would have to be seized, yet this task was easier said than done thanks to the historic strength of that city's geographic position. Coastal cities required not only a besieging army on land, but also a navy to cut the city's access to the sea. It was vital that La Rochelle's access to the sea was severed, so that the city would be forced to rely on its own provisions. These provisions had been significantly reduced thanks to the support which the citizens of the city had provided, generously, but foolishly perhaps, to Buckingham's ill-fated army. In March 1628, a scheme to surprise the city by entering through a sewer gate misfired 
and in April, a delirious English soldier who had gotten lost for nearly three weeks was captured. Sewn into his clothes were instructions from London, which suggested that the Duke of Buckingham would be back in a few weeks. Before he had left the city, Buckingham had left a few thousand English soldiers behind to aid the garrison at La Rochelle. But this force had been much reduced by starvation and disease, and demanded higher pay as spring 1628 progressed. Still, the possibility that Buckingham would return with a new fleet and more reinforcements to save his stranded soldiers and rescue the Huguenots evoked new levels of panic and urgency in Richelieu's camp. The cardinal considered more than once the possibility that he would have to abandon the siege and blame the failure on some subordinate. Amidst fresh rumours of English landings, the king felt compelled to journey from Paris to La Rochelle to put steel into the besiegers and help Richelieu retain control over the operation. He arrived in reasonable time, but was quickly informed of a new development. Against all odds, and apparently all sense of reason, on the 11th of May 1628, a second English expedition had been spotted off the coast of La Rochelle. The urgent prayers of the inhabitants had paid off, Here was their English miracle sent by God to deliver them from their plight. The mood of the citizens inside the walls was elevated and the Calvinist governor rushed from tower to tower to prepare the way for the English fleet who were expected to crush the blockade and land reinforcements that very night. In expectation of this deliverance, some of the city's inhabitants tucked into double rations that evening. Their faith in the triumph of the following morning demonstrated for all to see. A lesser figure could have well lost all hope at the sight of the tenacious, wretched English sticking their nose in the French king's business once more. Richelieu was indeed shaken by the incident, but through some organisational acrobatics, he ensured that a steady stream of French reinforcements kept going to La Rochelle, giving him a great numbers advantage over anything that the English might attempt. This intensive commitment in manpower, not to mention the requisition of supplies to feed and equip them all, explains why Richelieu believed he could only manage one campaign at a time. Because the Huguenots had roots established so deeply in the history of France, only a sustained and relentlessly expensive campaign would be sufficient to kill those roots and rid the realm of this menace once and for all. It was a game of endurance, and fortunately for Richelieu, the English fleet was not nearly as formidable as it first appeared. Back to the English situation after Buckingham's failed expedition in 1627 to help the besieged in La Rochelle, and you'll be unsurprised to learn that Buckingham was super unpopular upon his return home in late 1627, but this did not prevent King Charles from maintaining his firm friendship with him and to committing to support the Huguenots whatever the cost. The cause of the Huguenots would require money, of course, and while the king attempted to paper over the cracks, Buckingham urged him to call Parliament and wrest the money through some form of concession. In the shaky relationship between Parliament and King, this generally meant that King Charles would have to hear his MP's grievances, which he was not very fond of doing. But for Buckingham and the cause of La Rochelle, he swallowed his objections. He swallowed in vain though, because two major issues hampered the next expedition that was planned for 1628. First of all, the Duke of Buckingham wouldn't lead it, this role would be taken by his brother-in-law. Second, while they appeared impressive offshore, with their gleaming white sails and promisingly plentiful number, 
The reality was that this new fleet had been hastily gathered, badly organised, and even more terribly provisioned. Buckingham's brother-in-law was hesitant to the point of paranoid in making any committed attack on La Rochelle. Instead, he lurked offshore, inviting concessions from Richelieu and artificially raising the hopes of the citizens. To further confuse the story, when King Charles discovered that this fleet had achieved next to nothing, he sent orders for it to attack at once. But these orders were never received. The second expedition departed from La Rochelle's coast having achieved nothing, and it arrived back in London in the first week of June 1628, much depleted, having suffered attacks from pirates and unlawfully seized prizes from England's allies. Buckingham had not thought it possible, but the second attempt had been even more humiliating and disastrous than the first. King Charles shut himself away for two days, refusing any food or drink, but he neglected to punish anyone. What was worse, the feckless Buckingham was convinced, despite the evidence of improved fortifications which had been thrown up around La Rochelle to aid the French forces in their siege, and the erection of a dike which aided their blockade of the city, that he, and only he, could still achieve victory with a new expedition, the third expedition, in less than a year. Richelieu stayed fervently at his post during these trying days, that famous painting of him at the siege of La Rochelle being well-deserved. He did not merely arrive in its closing phase to seek some glory for his name. Instead, he endured the emotional roller coaster of the experience, even if he was provided with far more luxurious surroundings than the common soldier would have enjoyed. Amidst so many rumours of English reinforcements and the apparent refusal of the city to concede defeat, Richelieu's mood invariably endured highs and lows. If La Rochelle does not fall now, it will never fall, and the Huguenots will be more unbearably arrogant than ever, Richelieu exclaimed to his king. In late summer he seemed improved, and was plotting for the aftermath, writing again to King Louis. If you conquer the city, sire, your majesty will be the mightiest king in Christendom, and its arbiter. After the fall of the city, we must raise the fortifications of many other towns as well. But we must keep these plans strictly to ourselves, otherwise we may risk finding ourselves confronted with closed gates. It was somewhat late in the day to be worrying about how the siege of La Rochelle might influence some other Huguenot towns across France. By August, the citizens that remained in the city were surviving by eating the grass which had grown between the unattended cobblestones. The rats had long since been hunted down. Any citizens that begged to be allowed to escape the city could be executed by the increasingly desperate city fathers, and they were unlikely to receive mercy from the besieging soldiers who had instructions to drive all refugees back into La Rochelle by sword point, lest they be broken on the wheel themselves. No quarter could be given. Any displays of mercy would only prolong the siege, after all, and make the king and his country more vulnerable to external events. Richelieu ensured that the soldiers closest to the city walls had the most aromatic food as well, so that the starving defenders of La Rochelle were driven to a state of madness by the hunger pangs. By August 1628, La Rochelle looked increasingly like a ghost town, and it seemed certain that the end was near. The dead could no longer be buried, and they had to be dragged with ropes over the city walls to prevent the spread of disease, which, inevitably, ripped through the weakened defenders anyway. 
Defenders died standing from exposure or sheer weakness, and as autumn approached, the death toll climbed even higher. On the 18th of October, 400 citizens died from starvation, and thousands were dying every month. It must have been like an apocalypse, and pursuing the siege to the bitter end can't have been an easy task for the besiegers either, though they at least held the upper hand. Still, the city fathers and its Calvinist governor closed ranks and refused to give in. They held out hope for Buckingham's third expedition, a hope which turned out to be not as forlorn as one may have expected. By unexampled endurance, La Rochelle has held out now for a year under the tortures of famine, and all this to give your majesty time to send the promised help. The fact that your fleet appeared at last in spring, and was seen for several days, and sailed away without doing anything, or making the slightest attempt to do anything, even this has not shaken the resolution of the citizens. Will future generations read in the history of Her Majesty's reign that the town was destroyed while in your royal hands, and that from the goodwill which Your Majesty assured the citizens he nursed for their cause, the only reward they reaped was the pitiless enmity of their own sovereign, from whom without that goodwill they might have hoped to find mercy. These were the words of La Rochelle's ambassador to King Charles in late September 1628. By this point, a combination of religious conviction, Buckingham's persuasive arguments, and the sheer fact that so much had by now been invested in the operation, King Charles was genuinely affected and moved by the plight of the besieged. While his motives for pursuing a war with France, while also a war with Spain, should be heavily scrutinised, Charles was convinced of the necessity in sending yet another expedition to relieve the enduring Huguenots. Yet the British king was fighting an uphill battle, not only against his own courtiers, who were turning against Buckingham, but also against international opinion. Dutch and Venetian representatives had signalled their approval of the French siege of La Rochelle, and even while Dutch sailors had refused to board ships that were meant to attack the Huguenot fortress, the official policy of the Dutch government remained one of cauterising the Huguenot wound, so that France could be brought into a more secure footing and Spanish power could be combated more effectively. On the 23rd of August 1628, while talking with friends, Buckingham was fatally stabbed by a disgruntled soldier who had bought fully into the pamphlet then doing the rounds, which had described the unlucky Duke of Buckingham as the Viceroy of Satan. Regardless of his many flaws, Buckingham had been a staple feature of the Stuart court for some time. Charles had grown up with him, he had travelled with him, and he had depended upon him and saw him daily. You might remember that the Duke of Buckingham travelled with the then Prince Charles in order to find out what the story was in Madrid about the Spanish match stuff back in 1623 and 24. The news of the Duke of Buckingham's murder was whispered to the king as he was in prayer. Absorbing the news, the blood rushed to the king's face, and in a mixture of anger and grief, he withdrew to his chambers and flung himself weeping onto his grand bed. His good friend, and in many respects his mentor, was gone. Predictably enough, Cardinal Richelieu lost no sleep over Buckingham's death, writing, Buckingham was a man of low birth, of ignoble mind, without honour, without knowledge, ill-born and ill-bred. His father was deranged in mind and his brother so insane that he had to be shut up. He himself stood halfway between madness and sense. He was extravagant, possessed and without measure in his opinions. 
The end of Buckingham meant potentially significant things for the Anglo-French relationship. As Buckingham had been the driving force behind the assaults on La Rochelle, it stood to reason that the enthusiasm for that doomed venture would now fizzle out entirely. Henrietta Maria, the sister of King Louis XIII, and the estranged wife of the grieving King Charles, had also loathed Buckingham, and it was her messenger that bore the news of Buckingham's end. Thinking it a trap, King Louis, hilariously enough, initially had this messenger imprisoned, but when the truth was learned and his origins made clear, the king awarded his sister's messenger with 1,000 thalers and sent him on his way. Evidently, the French royals hoped that the removal of so vehemently anti-French a figure represented the beginning of a new era in Anglo-French relations. Richelieu simply hoped that it meant an end to English ventures in aid of La Rochelle. Incredibly enough, though, Richelieu was to be disappointed. On the 3rd of October 1628, the third and final expedition appeared outside La Rochelle's harbour. This was the most impressive expedition yet. It contained 114 ships, 11 infantry divisions, and it was led by a competent sailor, Lord Lindsay, who had distinguished himself at sea against the Spanish from a young age. This venture appears more like an act of personal vengeance from a bitterly grief-stricken king than any coordinated campaign, but Richelieu still could not afford to ignore it. During the first week of October, Lindsay's fleet attempted to entrap their French counterparts, but the manoeuvres were unsuccessful, and French coastal defences were by now too strong. Lindsay faced mutiny from his sailors in spite of the urgency of his mission, that being to bring food to La Rochelle and relieve the suffering of its citizens. By the first week of October, though, it was far too late for a rescue of La Rochelle, and Lindsay surely knew it. The defences which Richelieu had ordered erected in the spring of 1628 were now impregnable, and the city had lost 8,000 inhabitants through starvation and deprivation since the summer of 1628 began. La Rochelle was a shell of its former self. Lindsay attempted to offer terms and to mediate between King Louis and the Huguenots, but neither Richelieu nor Louis were in any mood to permit English interference in this regard. The king demanded capitulation from his subjects and insisted that freedom of worship would only be a temporary perk of a timely surrender. By mid-October, Lindsay had to inform La Rochelle's governor that his fleet was not fit for combat owing to mutiny, and by the 26th of October, the remaining inhabitants of the gutted city gathered to bow to the inevitable. The writing had been on the wall for some time for La Rochelle, but with this final English failure, there was no longer anything to hope for, and even less to fight for. A prisoner of the citizens was asked to appeal to the king's mercy, as the city surrendered unconditionally to its predicament at last. Shortly after, Lindsay's fleet sailed away, and on the 28th of October 1628, the surrender of La Rochelle was officially received. The ordeal had taken the guts of a year, but it was finally complete. The back of the Huguenots had been broken once and for all. Several approaches for dealing with the city were suggested, revolving around the question of whether mercy should be shown or whether the city should be made an example of for the remaining Huguenots in the realm. Richelieu weighed in on the debate, indicating as he did so where he stood and what he believed the bigger picture to be. Seldom has a prince been given such an opportunity to distinguish himself by his mildness before the world and future ages, 
mildness and pity are the qualities in which kings should imitate God, for they can be his true representatives on earth only by good deeds and not by destruction and extermination. Also, the deeper the guilt of La Rochelle, the more glorious must appear the monarch's greatness of heart. He has broken the town's resistance by his invincible arms and forced the rebels to fling themselves on his mercy and that alone. But still greater will seem his victory over himself if he now forgives them. The name of this town will carry his fame over all the world and spread it among future generations. It was a grand gesture, but the recipients of whatever mercy the king could muster were now greatly reduced. At the beginning of the siege, La Rochelle had stood proud with over 25,000 citizens, but by the final days of October, barely 5,000 remained. The capture of La Rochelle didn't eradicate French Protestants overnight, nor did it eliminate the possibility of a Huguenot uprising in the future, but it did significantly reduce that possibility. It did, in the first place, place one of Europe's foremost ports into the absolute control of the French crown. In addition, Richelieu now had the leverage necessary to make a lasting peace with the Huguenots, one which would shatter their political autonomy, even if their creed technically remained legal. Making this peace was a careful balance between dealing a heavy blow to the Huguenots, impressing upon them the errors of their ways, and emphasising the magnanimity of the king's mercy. A demanding checklist, for sure, but Richelieu achieved it with the so-called Edict of Grace, wherein Protestant worship was permitted, but the Huguenots were prevented from establishing or maintaining any state within the state into the future. This edict confirmed the Edict of Nantes from a previous generation, and confirmed the central authority of the King of France over all his subjects. It was signed in late June 1629, a few months after a very different, far less appeasing edict had been declared law by the Holy Roman Emperor. We're going to continue the story of not just the implications of La Rochelle for the French, but also for the Spanish in just a bit. But before we do, I want to remind you of something very special and exciting. Matchlock and the Embassy is out now, and if you would like to read this piece of historical fiction based during the Thirty Years' War, then, by all means, do so. You can get it in all the usual places, including Amazon. Hopefully, by now, it should be inserted into your local bookstore. If it's not, try and ask for it to encourage supporting of local bookstores. But you can also get the ebook and the actual physical copy in libraries as well. I'm all about making sure the book is available in as many places as possible, so if you don't seem to be able to find it, let me know and I'll see what I can do. Of course, buying the book is one stage of support. Leaving a review is something that really the most valued and supremely wonderful history friends do. So if you found Matchlock and the Embassy to be particularly enjoyable, then please do give me a review. Honest review, of course, in the usual places. Amazon, Goodreads, etc. being the most useful for me. These reviews will get my name out there and they'll also help with the different algorithms in those online vendors to ensure that my book is seen and hopefully purchased by more and more people. And there's never been a better time to do so because I recently celebrated my 30th birthday and if you just weren't quite sure what to get me as a present, then buying this book or reviewing this book if you've bought it already would genuinely be so super wonderful as a present and it's really all I could hope for. It's really important to me that Matchlock and the Embassy establishes a firm platform for this series going forward. 
and it is going to be a big series and I do hope to have the second book released before the end of the year so keep an eye out for that. Alright history friends you've heard me ramble about Matchlock more than enough by now but if you also would like to get Matchlock for free and to get additional audio perks such as an hour of extra content a month with series such as Poland is not yet lost and the Suez Crisis available then patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails is where you ought to go. Both Matchlock and Patreon are two really important avenues you can use to financially support this show, but for moral support and for just spreading the word generally, that's wonderful too. Thanks so much for all you've done, and thanks for putting up with these plugs. Let's get back to the rest of the episode. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The conclusion of the La Rochelle siege in late October 1628 meant the effective end of this final Huguenot rebellion, but it also spelled doom for Spanish strategy in Italy. Having banked on Casals submitting quickly to the joint Spanish Savoyard invasion, the tenacity of Casals' inhabitants against the expectations of Count Olivares meant that Spain was still invested in that siege when La Rochelle collapsed. As early as March 1628, when Richelieu continued to bang his head against La Rochelle's walls, the cardinal was informed of the Spanish Savoyard attack on Montferrat. He was kept appraised of events in Montferrat, as that coalition of the Spanish and Savoyards rolled up every outlying town before finally reaching Casal in mid-May 1628. Richelieu had confidence in the strength of Casal's position, but he didn't want to bet his career upon its relief. He communicated with the Spanish to see if there existed some way to honourably achieve satisfaction for France and Spain. This went against his earlier insistence to Spignola that he would support the Duke of Nevers no matter the consequences, but they do reflect at the same time his weakness so long as La Rochelle sucked in so many of the French king's men. 
With these negotiations between France and Spain breaking down, likely because the Spanish thought they'd be able to get away with it, Richelieu informed his king that 20,000 men would be ready within a couple of weeks to march towards North Italy as soon as La Rochelle fell. Of course, this meant that until La Rochelle ceased to be a problem, Richelieu had more than enough on his plate, and he'd have to rely on Casal to hold out against the Spanish onslaught for as long as possible. Disagreements followed in Madrid over these developments, as Philip IV's ministers demonstrated their divided opinions and their agreement with Spaniola in turn, while others, like Olivares, insisted that no expense on the reputation of the Spanish realm was too great to spare. It was not until August 1628 that the siege of Casal in Montferrat was presented in its full context before the Spanish Council of State, and then the penny dropped for the Spanish king, and he authorised that any means necessary be used to accelerate the fall of that Italian stronghold. Unfortunately for King Philip IV of Spain, these urgings were in vain. Autumn would bring successive bitter blows to Olivares' administration and to the Spanish psyche, to the extent that it may be considered a turning point of the Thirty Years' War. First, the weather around Casal deteriorated, and the roads were transformed into torrents of mud, through which only the most tenacious and indefatigable army could march. Having sat outside Casal for nearly half a year, the Spanish had exhausted their reserves, and they couldn't hold on through winter in this state. The decision of the Spanish commander to hold on after all meant that he would be in no state to meet any relief army that materialised in 1629, at least not without some serious backup. And this was where the Holy Roman Emperor's reinforcements came in. As the siege of Casal carried on into the winter of 1628, news from thousands of miles away brought intense shame and dismay to Madrid. The exploits of Piet Hein at the expense of the Spanish treasure fleet was not only a psychological blow, it was also a financial disaster, because the incomes from this fleet had already been factored into Spain's debt repayments. With no money coming in, Spain skimped on its wages to the army of the Spanish Netherlands, or what was left of it, during a six-month period, from late 1628 to the first half of 1629. During these circumstances, Frederick Henry's meticulous operations outside Sertigenbosch excelled, compounding Madrid's failures. Finally, the hammer blow of La Rochelle's capitulation in late October 1628 made it apparent that Spain had lost the race. She would now have to contend with the relief army sent by France to be expected some time in spring 1629. Again, considering the grim task of the besiegers to hold on outside Casal during the harsh winter of 1628-29, it was unlikely these soldiers would be equal to the task of meeting any significant French challenge. Thus, the requests of support sent to the Emperor went from a trickle to a flood, as Spanish fortunes during autumn 1628 worsened dramatically. King Philip IV also seems to have decided in late 1628 to have swallowed his pride with regard to Italy. Together with his ministers, he composed a letter to King Louis XIII, which amounted to a surrender. It read... In the interests of Christendom and for the peace and tranquillity of Italy, which I have always desired and work for, I declare that neither now nor in the future will I do anything to impede the Duke of Nevers' possession of the dukedoms of Mantua and Montferrat, nor will I threaten in any way the territories of the Christian king, that is of France, or those of his princes and confederates. 
the said king will in return make a similar declaration and will retire his army from Montferrat, Susa, Piedmont and Italy. I swear and promise on my faith and royal word to observe this and maintain it firmly and truthfully forever. It is highly significant that in the context of a French resurgence following the fall of La Rochelle, the French king refused this overture, thus signalling his willingness to fight it out with the Habsburg forces in this latest Italian war. Having emerged from such a trying period of his reign, Louis seemed content to harness the newfound security which the crushing of La Rochelle granted him. Preparing for a proxy war with Spain in North Italy was no small commitment, but Richelieu had evidently informed him that France could manage it. Having spent so many years on the defensive, Richelieu believed that the time was right at last to take the fight to Spain. Just when King Philip IV's realm was at its most overstretched, impoverished and weakened. The interconnectedness of these highly varied war theatres, outside La Rochelle, at the walls of Casal, and thousands of miles away at sea under the command of Piet Hein, had never been so strikingly demonstrated before. In the next episode, then, we'll cut to a different theatre. We'll examine how the German rulers came together at Regensburg in 1630, by analysing the path paved towards that conference and what the Emperor hoped to achieve by calling it. Furthermore, in the context of the flagging Spanish war effort in North Italy, we'll connect the dots formed here and assess the contribution made by the Emperor towards his troubled Spanish cousins. Tasked with this mission, Wallenstein was less than enthusiastic, but as he was quickly discovering, the Emperor accepted nothing less than his complete cooperation. Indeed, it almost seemed as though to Wallenstein that the Emperor was looking for any excuse to replace him. All this and more is to come in episode 46, but until then, history friends, my name is Zach, I am now 30 freaking years old, and you've been listening to episode 45 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening and supporting this show, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.